Good morning, everybody. Is everybody awake? Everybody excited? <laughs> Fantastic. Um, let me pray, and uh, we're going to jump into God's Word together. So let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for this opportunity to gather as your family uh, on mission, making disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we reflect on this ancient text, that it would jump out of the pages into our lives, our minds and hearts, and impact on the way we think, the way that we live, the way that we respond. So uh, help us now um, and enlighten us through your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, uh, we're going to look at one narrative through the lens of two different stories. Um, One narrative through two different uh, examples of stories. Uh, And so I want to share with you what that overall narrative is that we're going to look at today. It's this. There is a powerful king who leaves his position of power in pursuit of the one that he loves. Once capturing the heart of the one that he loves, he then tries to return to the glory he once had. Say that again. Uh, Here's the the narrative. There's a powerful king who leaves his position of power in pursuit of the one that he loves. Once capturing the heart of the one he loves, he then tries to return to the glory he once had. This plays out in two different stories that we're going to look at briefly today. Here's story number one. A photo is going to appear on the screen. Uh, I don't know if any of you recognize who uh, is in this photo. Um, Some of you may. Most of you probably won't, uh, unless you're Graham Barker and you lived during that era. Um, uh, The gentleman on the right uh, uh, was known as King Edward VIII of the United Kingdom. Uh, Charming, intelligent, powerful, and influential man. That's who he was. He was the most well-known man in the world in the 1930s. Um, So think of whatever you think the biggest celebrity is living today. He was that guy then. Uh, On his left, the American who ruined it all. (laughs) Sorry, guys. It's in our nature. It's what we do. Bad people. Uh, The the woman there uh, is named Wallace Simpson. Uh, an American socialite who, through the relational circles uh, uh, that she was in with her then-husband, uh, met and befriended King Edward here. Uh, much has been written about these two over the years, but the basic story is this. Uh, King Edward fell so much in love with this already married woman that he decided he couldn't live without her. Um, but because British... Um, The the traditions in the British monarchy uh, forbid a king to marry a commoner, let alone someone who was already married to somebody else at the time. Edward decided to give up the throne. Uh, In a nationwide radio address, King Edward told his royal subject this. He said, You must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do, without the help and support of the woman I love. Um, So, this was a scandal that rocked the world. Uh, Edward decided to give up the splendor of his royal position, um, all his influence and his power, um, to become a commoner for the woman that he loved. Sounds romantic, right? Like, we write stories about this sort of stuff. 
melts the heart. Like, how amazing is that? But it's not really that clear cut. This is actually a pretty, a pretty serious and scandalous incident. Um, Edward had, after he left the throne, had some sort of, uh, yeah, was not as squeaky clean as we have imagined. He sort of sidled up to some Nazis um, in his day. But then even uh, after, after that, after World War II happened, um, his younger brother, who had become uh, king in his place, had died suddenly, and his uh, young daughter, who we now know as Elizabeth II, was about to be crowned uh, as the Queen of England. And while this was happening, Edward tried to make a play to enter back into power, to regain the power that he once had, um, to serve as what he said is the regent to the throne. So his young niece, Elizabeth, he thought, well, she's young. She needs someone wiser and older to influence what she's doing. And that guy's me. And thought this is his way to get back in. But due to the shame that he had brought the royal family, that never eventuated. And then he lived the rest of his life as kind of as an outcast until his death in 1972. Thanks, Steve. So that's story number one. Story number two goes like this. Uh, in John 17, which was just read for us, uh, we find Jesus praying. Uh, there have been several other instances of Jesus' recorded prayers through the Gospels, but this one, by far, I think, is the most profound. Uh, after spending his last few hours with his closest friends, Jesus turns to his Father and he prays. And the disciples who were there um, were privy to, to listen to this prayer, to be included in it. And in verses 1 to 5 that we are looking at today, Jesus uh, is using this language that sort of describes this, this narrative that we've already talked about. Speaking like a royal who has left the throne, who's left his splendor and power, his home, his everything, for the one that he loves. And then he expresses this desire to return. But unlike Edward, uh, somehow in this section... Jesus' departure from the throne means not shame, but success. Not scandal, but glory, and results in being crowned in even more splendor instead of being shunned. Which begs the question, well, what's going on in this story in the first place? Um, what do we do with this sort of narrative? Is Jesus' story going to end up like Edward's or not? And how do we respond to it? These five verses answer three deeply important theological questions, questions that people have been asking for centuries and wrestling with forever and ever, just talking about, what does this mean? What is, and we're going to try to, I'm going to answer all these questions for you in the next 15 minutes of these deep theological truths people have been wrestling with for centuries. It's going to be awesome. All right? So what are these three questions that this passage raises? Uh, number one, question number one, who was Jesus before all of this? In verse 5, he mentions something about um, returning to the glory that he once had before the creation of the world. What is he talking about? And who, so who was Jesus before all of this? Which seems like a really weird question to ask, right? Because if someone came up to me and says, Travis, who were you before you were born? How would I even answer that? I was a sparkling in my mother's eye. That's what I was. Or something sappy. That's what I'd say, probably. But um, the Bible actually makes a massive claim about Jesus. That he wasn't just a twinkling in his mother's eye, but that he was alive and at work before the world began. Have a look here at John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. This is how John's gospel starts. 
It says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, Paul puts that same idea this way. He says, the Son, that's talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, that, that word firstborn means firstborn, first in importance, not first as in the first thing God created. How do we know that? Well, keep reading. Because it says, For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in John chapter 17, verse 5, when Jesus is talking about the glory he had before the world began, this is what he's talking about, that Jesus is God. The fullness of God dwells in and through him, and by Jesus everything was made. In this, in this world, before the creation of the world, in this realm, Jesus reigned as creator with Father, with the Father and the Spirit, this three-in-one God, this triune God. There in the beauty and complexity uh, of, of that relationship is um, what we call the Trinity, where Jesus was king and angels bowed down to him. Stars were flung into space by simply a word that he spoke. And it's a picture of royalty at its pinnacle, right? Like, you don't get more majestic than that. With angels bowing, celestial beings bowing down to you, and things happening as soon as you speak it, right? It's the, the greatest picture of royalty that we could have. So that's who Jesus was before the creation of the world. So which leads us to question two. Why did he leave all of that behind? Why did Jesus leave that glory that he had before? That's where he was and what he was doing uh, it seems like a pretty cool place to be in. Why would you leave that? Well, there are sev several biblical answers to that question. Uh, Jesus answers that question here in verse 2. Um, if you have a look, Jesus is talking to God the Father, and he says, For you, talking to the Father, have granted me, the Son, authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So what, why did he... Why did he leave? Why, what was the point of leaving heaven and all this glory behind? So that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now what's missed here is that Jesus indicates that though he was king in the heavenly realms, the realm of people, earth, you and me, uh, we were unaware that there was even a king to begin with. And because there was no visible ruler over our lives, um, we as humans put anything or anyone else on the throne as king that we wanted to serve, we wanted to go after, we wanted to pursue, whether it was relationships, other people that we put on the throne, or whether it's money, that that's the thing that we're chasing after, or sex, or power, or violence, or ourselves, that when we don't know that there's a king of the universe, we'll put anything up there, and we'll go after that thing. And whenever that happens... The Bible says we actually move further and further and further away from the full life that God had intended for us. Life as it was always meant to be lived. Life everlasting, or as Jesus puts it here, eternal life. So here Jesus is saying, I left 
my royal position in heaven, that glory, that splendor, everything I had before the creation of the world with God so that humans might recognize me for who I really am. In that by knowing God, by knowing Jesus, by believing in him, they can have eternal, everlasting, full life. Life as it was always meant to be lived. John, uh, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, puts that same idea this way. He says, no one has ever seen God. In other words, no one knew that there was, that God was king. No one was aware of that idea, except the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, who has made him known. Why did Jesus come? Well, a big part of that answer in John's gospel is to make it clear that God is king. Not those other things that we try to pursue or put on the throne of our lives, but God is the one that we should be following after. He's the one that gives us real life. This Jesus leaving his royal position in heaven to come to earth is so monumental. There's actually all kinds of reasons why it happened on top of making God known to the world. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, um, it says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In John chapter 1, verse 29, uh, John the Baptist, he's, he's seeing Jesus approach him. And this is what he says about Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why did Jesus come? He took, came to take away the sin of the world. Paul, in 2 Corinthians verse, um, chapter 8, verse 9, says, uh, Though he, Jesus, was very rich, talking about his royal position, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Why did Jesus leave all this stuff that he had behind? So that you and I can experience the richness of life that he enjoys with the Father. Isaiah, looking forward to Jesus' day, wrote this in chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance upon evil of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Why did Jesus come? To set the captives free, to rescue the prisoner, to give sight to the blind, to, to give those who are in despair and grieving joy and hope in a future. And finally, Jesus left the throne for love. Uh, you probably know this verse, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So why did Jesus leave the splendor of heaven? Well, there's lots of reasons to defeat our mortal enemies, Satan and sin and death. To bring us eternal life, life as it was always meant to be lived, without pain or suffering or heartache. To demonstrate that the real king of the universe is not ourselves or whatever it else it is that we put on the throne, but God, a God who is willing to leave everything behind to rescue the one that he loves. It's you and me. 
Which then leads us to the third question that this um, section presents. Why did Jesus want to return? Why did he need to return? What's that all about? See, like Edward, Jesus left his throne for the one that he loves. Uh, Edward's departure from the throne was never really part of the plan, however. right? He became king. He didn't know this was going to happen, that he was going to meet this woman and fall in love, and that his only option was to leave the throne behind to, to be with her. He didn't know that was part of the plan. But he essentially chose the woman, uh, the love of this woman uh, over responsibility to fulfill his obligation to rule. And by choosing love, he abandoned his family and his commission as king. However, that is not the case with Jesus. In John chapter 17, verse 4, if you have a look in your Bibles, it's on the screen as well. It says, Jesus says this. He says, I have brought you, talking to the Father, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Jesus left his heavenly throne for the one that he loves, not at the expense of his duty or his family obligations, but because of it. In leaving heaven and coming to earth, living as a human and ultimately dying for us, Jesus brought God glory. That was always part of the plan. And here, Jesus is looking ahead to his uh, impending death and resurrection, and he says to the Father, I've done it. I've obeyed my mandate to reveal you, God, as king, to destroy sin and death, to rescue those in despair. I've done it. And in John's gospel, the very last words Jesus says before he dies is, it is finished. This giant rescue plan that was in place before the creation of the world has come to pass. And because Jesus was delivered from death, um, he lives again, there's now even more glory, the Bible talks about. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Um, he says this, And being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it results in even, what Jesus has done results in even more praise and glory. Which, when I was sort of researching this, makes me think, well, why is that the case? If Jesus was always God, if he was always king, why does God, why does the Father give him more glory? Shouldn't he have the same amount of glory? Doesn't that... How's that? What's changed? What's changed is that before Jesus came, you and I, we all, all of us lived in ignorance over who or what was king of our lives. But now that Jesus has come and made the Father known and the world has made, been made aware that rescue is available to them, it results in more praise and splendor and, and adulation because more and more people have come to know um, that God is king. More and more people have been invited to the full life that is promised by Jesus into the family of God. And that results in us uh, praising God more, more and more people praising God more. So what does this mean for all of us? When we look at these five short verses, um, this story of uh, this royal king who left the, the one, uh, he left his royal position for the one that he loved in order to return, what does it all mean? Well, in these five short verses... Um, you, we actually find the whole story of God. 
that if somehow the rest of our Bibles just disappeared or someone tried to get rid of them and all we had left were, uh, were these five verses, uh, essentially you could find huge theological truths in these passages. Enough that it explains the whole story of who God is, right? The character of God, the understanding of the nature and the work of Jesus, the state of the world with and without its king, or without, with and without the right king at its, at its center. This passage uses, talks about big theological words that you may or may not even care about or know, like incarnation and ontology and the missio dei and Christology. All those big um, theological terms all get answered here. This prayer that Jesus prays gives us an immensely clear window into the heart and work of Jesus. That the God who created the universe is for you. He left his heavenly splendor to rescue you and give you life. And we find out he's not done. He is risen and returned to heaven where he is at work making all things new right now. And you and I are invited into this eternal life. That's what Jesus is praying. I said, I've come to give them eternal life. And that life begins right now. Not some point in the future after we die or whatever. It begins now. That you and I now can be sons and daughters of the king, which makes us royalty. I mean, who doesn't want to hang out with Prince Travis, right? I mean, he's a pretty cool guy. I don't know. But anyway, um, but it also gives us this commission to continue the work of Jesus by helping uh, other people know that God is king. Later in this prayer, Jesus specifically prays for us in great detail, and that's what we're going to look at next week and the following week. But even here, we get this intense glimpse of a reality that should change everything for us. The king of the universe left his throne for you, of all people. But unlike Edward, has not tried to return in shame, but in power and in splendor. Poor Edward died a relative nobody. But you and I get to live as princes and princesses forever, carrying on the work and love of Jesus to a world that needs to know that there is a king. Jesus talks about a similar uh, idea in John chapter 6. He calls himself the bread of life. And uh, he says, unless uh, this, this, this life, this eternal life is made available to anyone, and all you need to do is come and eat. And people just didn't know what to do with that. And they said, this is, a, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept that? And uh, a bunch of people walked away. They heard this message. They heard that Jesus is the one that can bring everything that they're looking for, that all they have to do is partake, believe, follow after him. And people said, no, don't want to. People start leaving. So Jesus looks at his, his closest followers, his disciples, and he says, do you want, what about you? Do you want to leave too? And Peter says this. He says, well, that could be our response to hearing all this, this great message that Jesus is king, that that's who he was. He left his royal throne for the one that he loves, and he's returning the glory, and we can share in this eternal life with him. We can walk away and say, no, that's not for me. I'd rather have someone or something else as the king of my life. Or we can respond as Peter did, where he says, Lord, where else do we have to go? Where else can we go? You alone are the one who holds the words of eternal life. So what's your response? Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are king. 
You left the splendor of heaven for us, the one you love. And through your life, death, and resurrection, you have conquered sin and death and invite us into your family. And that's available for all who believe in you. We want to thank you for this amazing and mind-blowing truth. And you have returned with even more glory as you now make all things new. And you invite us to join you into this eternal life. Help us not to live our life out as nobodies who walk away or people who live with other things as king of our life, but as royal ambassadors of the king of all kings, showing your great love and kindness to a world that needs rescuing. Thank you for who you are and what you have done in Jesus. We pray that this in his name. Amen.